namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namatsami I mentioned at the beginning the uh, wish to dedicate this evening's chanting to our good friend Alan, Alan Turner, who passed away, I think it might have been actually the early hours of Tuesday morning. Uh, Anyway, it wasn't long after uh, we went in to see him on Monday, this past week. And I was very pleased that we had a chance to see him and spend some time with him and and uh, with his wife Alison in the hospital, in the Freeman Hospital. And I felt very fortunate really to to have that brief period of time because there's no doubt about it that when somebody is going through such a powerful period of transition, uh, there's a, a real intensity there. And it brings a lot of things into focus. I was very happy to to see how at peace with things uh, Alan was. His, his eyes were very bright, and it wasn't because of medication. Uh, I don't think he, uh, if he was taking any medication, it was very very mild uh, medication. He wasn't in a lot of pain, but there was no doubt about, it, as far as the doctors were concerned, that his body wasn't going to last for long and. And the bigger part of him knew that was the case. Inevitably, there was probably some hope there that it was, you know, something might change. And he'd certainly pulled himself through some serious um, challenges in the past. But I think the bigger part of him knew that uh, time was very limited. But there was a, a wonderful uh, vibrance of spirit there. and. And to have that period of time with him together and just to chat. and Well, he couldn't talk, of course. He's, he lost his voice box through the last cancer operation. And, but he could mouth things to us and make some scribbles on his pad. And somehow we managed to communicate. And, and then also to uh, do the chanting with him because he hadn't been to Puja for a long time. So I suggested we could do Puja in his room there and... We warned the nurses and the doctors, they didn't seem to mind. He had a private cubicle, so we did chanting with him, and then he mouthed along with it, couldn't make any noise, but still mouthed along with it, and was there in intention, and then to sit in meditation together. And at the end of it, to, to feel a shared sense of, uh, of real peace and, and uh, contentment. It was, a, it was inspiring, and an image that I will carry with me. I, I feel very happy for Alan that uh, that he went out like that. Not not everybody has the good fortune to go out in such a painless way. For a lot of people, it's the pain is intolerable, and serious medication means the cloud, the mind becomes clouded. And but uh, for him, it went well. And and so, as I say, I feel very fortunate to have had the chance to spend time with Alan. For those of you that, that knew him and um, want to know what's going to happen in terms of a funeral, uh, 
Alison is coming out to see me on Tuesday and we're going to talk about what we might do together. And I'm sure people will pass the word around. One of the uh, reflections that came to mind thinking about and witnessing what happened for Alan or what was happening for Alan at the end there was this consideration that um, we are responsible for our own actions and that from the Buddhist teachings we're encouraged to reflect on this regularly you can't we can't live our lives heedlessly just following our instincts and our passions and then at the last minute do a deal with with reality and say oh well, sorry about all that I'll I, I really do better uh, in the future just before you check out it doesn't work like that at all uh, even theistic religions uh, that can't well, I suppose actually some of them do say they offer um, something at the end, but whatever they've got to say about it, that's um, that's not something that fits with with uh, anything that I've seen in my own experience, and not what I, my own convictions tell me, and certainly not what what the Buddhist teachings tell us, which is that basically in the end you're alone with your karma. That is the the result of uh, your intentional actions through your life. And um, and the theory also is that that f- the future life will be determined by by the karma of one's one's um, present life, and and that however well intentioned we might be in the last moments, actually you can't just as an act of will override the overall consequences of your life. And so it's said that the wisest thing to do is to uh, be aware of this and reflect on this regularly and to see that we are the product of the way of the karma that we create. Our lives are the product of the karma that we create and and we are really the authors of our own life. It's easy to uh, feel that it's otherwise and it's certainly supported by a lot of shared thinking and the, the culture and society we live in that somehow we're all victims of our circumstances and there are, from one perspective, there is, and the word victim does have its, its its relevance. However, from another perspective, from a core perspective, we're encouraged to reflect that we do have a choice. As I was saying in the introduction to the meditation, we have a choice as to what we pay attention to. When unwholesome uh, tendencies come to mind, we actually have a choice whether to follow them or not. We may not feel that way, like if we followed our tendencies to indulge in anger for a long time. Anger arises in the mind and we can think we don't have a choice, we just feel driven by it. But potentially, at least there is a choice, or the same with greed. We may feel that we just get overcome by greed, but the theory of practice, anyway, tells us that um, that's the way it appears because of uh, the way we followed, the habits we've cultivated. The reality is that if we exercise the choice to restrain the impulse to follow these tendencies of mind long enough, we will eventually come to see for ourselves. We will come to feel for ourselves that power, that strength 
to stay still while the wild passions flare up. We don't have to be defined by them. They come and they go. They don't just come and go. I mean, they come like a wild horse or, or like a volcano sometimes, or like roaring waves. These passions can flare up and threaten to take us over. But the reality is still the same, that these things come and go. And we do have the... Uh, it is our responsibility whether we follow them or not. And, and there are consequences. And so the encouragement that we were chanting at the end of the meditation there, the, the reflection on, I am the owner of my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, by supported by my karma. Whatever karma or whatever actions I will do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. Now this reflection is based on this principle that we are the uh, we are the creators of our own lives. We're not victims to somebody else's or something else's dictates. So in spending time with uh, with Alan, I couldn't help but think that this man's lived a good life. Yeah. I've seen other people at the end of their lives and and I've seen some people um, have a lot of pain, a tremendous amount of suffering, but there's a, a still at the core of their being. There's a there's a quality of of well, there's ability to be with it. They're not their minds are not caught in resentment or or resignation or avoidance. There's a their minds have been sufficiently trained. To be able to be with it, to even even considerable pain and, and suffering, but in Alan's case, it was it was relatively free from pain and struggle, and and it was uh, as I say, something I, I must I really felt that you know, this is the consequence of a good life and and an inspiration, to, an encouragement in one's own life to to remember this, because when the when the sense objects come up, you know, whether the beautiful or ugly, sight, sound, smell, taste, touches, and mental impressions, it's so really easy to be fooled by them. Be fooled by the way things appear to be. Earlier today, somebody contacted me and and rang, spoke to me on the phone because they're most distressed because they're. Um, they found they, there's somebody who had a lot of anger in their heart and they would be caught up in this anger, raging about something and then suddenly they would think of the Buddha and the Buddha image would come to mind and then the anger and rage that they were actually indulging in and caught up in towards some ugly object gets transferred onto the Buddha and they start hating and feeling angry towards the Buddha and that was that where they felt so totally ashamed and guilt-ridden by that that they then got into this uh, vicious attack on themselves, uh, really beat themselves up until they were convinced that they were just utterly shameless piece of filth, and then asked for forgiveness from the Buddha for for having hated the Buddha. And behind that was the uh, was a sense of well. You know, you can't hate the Buddha because the Buddha is all pure. And if I hate the Buddha, I must be impure. I must be bad. But the consequences of actually hating oneself 
Well, if we don't stop and look at it, we can feel righteous, and that's that's what happens if we are not if we don't really develop our own inner seeing, our own capacity for reading reality inwardly. We can, you know, if you hate something that's wonderful and good and beautiful like the Buddha, then it must mean you are really bad. On the surface level, it can appear like that. Or if somebody good and virtuous, maybe I remember a few years ago I knew this woman who, one of the most virtuous and beautiful people I've ever met in every way, and I'd known her for many years, and she was consistent throughout, generous and kind and and consistent throughout in her practice. And, and then she got this terrible, horrendously painful cancer, an awful, awful condition that she went out in. And on the apparent level, there's something unjust and wrong about that, and and it, it can feel justified to get indignant and say, it shouldn't be this way. How could such a beautiful person, why? A surface level of reaction to something like that could be one of, of righteous indignation. Feeling somehow getting indignant and impassioned with anger about it being wrong. It shouldn't be this way, enraging about it. Believing that that reaction is somehow going to take us to a sense of increased well-being, or that's what we're behind it. Or, here's the earlier example of feeling hatred towards the Buddha, and then feeling justified and beating yourself up over it in a terrible, vicious way. Well, what the uh, Dhamma reflection on this is, Encouraging us, encouraging us towards, is not settling for the apparent way of reacting to these things. It's the way things appear to be is one thing. Mm. The way things actually are can be completely different. Mm. Probably many of you have met people who have been through seriously challenging very, very difficult times. And uh, and you could th- feel sorry for these people and say, oh, how terrible they've been through such suffering. And yet when you talk to them, there's a, a sense of, sometimes there's, oh, there's a, a sense of real gratitude, a tremendous sense of appreciation for, for what they were challenged towards. Mm. Maybe in your own lives, or experiences that you've had that that at the time it just feels intolerable. Mm. Now, utterly unfair life can sometimes appear to be. And yet the reality is that uh, only often when we're only when we're challenged like that do we dig deeper. Do we really dig down? and look to see, is there any way that I can survive this? Is there any way? What can I do? We could, of course, react and look for some distraction or some avoidance, and probably most of us have tried a few of those in our time. But hopefully we don't try for too long and too seriously and turn the attention of the light of attention inwards and start to seek out inner resources and say, is there anything 
that I can do? Is there any way that I can survive this? And if we ask such real questions in a feeling way, at the same time as knowing the suffering of the current predicament, then the, the reality is that we go deeper and we discover things. The heart can open to accommodate experiences that previously we simply felt were in beyond all possibility of accommodating. And then the miracle is you discover that you, when your heart opens up to accommodate some intolerable, absolutely intolerable, unbearable pain, that you discover in this new open-hearted state there's all sorts of wonderful possibilities there. That now in this, this new, larger capacity that we're experiencing ourselves as, we can accommodate much more of life. Not just the ugly, painful things of life, but also the beauty of life. There's a sense of, of, of trust and freedom, a freedom that comes from that open-heartedness. And this is not, this is not easily attained to this, this state, this condition of willingness to open to life. And the reality for, for most people, there may be some who, because of their, their wholesome accumulations, find it easier than others, but for most people, it, it is really the experience of intense suffering, the sort of suffering that we find unbearable, intolerable, that really challenges us, that opens us up. And, and that's not something that uh, our superficial mind is really aware of. The, the superficial level of experiences, as we've talked about many times before, is if it feels good, it is good. If it feels bad, it is bad. But the reality experience, the Dhamma perspective on life, can be quite the opposite. So, talking with this chap earlier this afternoon who rang me about his distress, that he was caught in hating the Buddha and uh, feeling like he's caught in a, a cycle. And actually, he really respected the Buddha and respected the Buddha's teaching, but when this experience would happen from time to time whereby he'd be caught up in hatred towards some other object and the hatred would then get deflected and, and land on the Buddha and and no matter how much he hated himself for it it didn't seem to get him out of it so what we talked about was was the story that the Buddha gave the, the image the Buddha gave of, of if you're in the forest with you and your three three mates somebody well three people that one is your best friend and one is somebody you don't really know, you feel neutral towards, and then one, of course, is your worst enemy. And the four of you in the forest, these brigands come across you and tell you that it's up to you to uh, choose who's going to be sacrificed. One of you is going to be sacrificed, and the rest are going to be let free. And it's up to you to choose who it's going to be. The four of you, you, your best friend, a neutral person, and your worst enemy. And these it's up to you to choose who's it going to be and um, the Buddha in talking to his monks about this said well he said, if your mind moves in preference to any one of the four then you still don't get the point of my teaching and that's not necessarily what we would expect the conditioned mind 
my conditioned mind says, oh, well, I should sacrifice myself. That's what the idealistic conditioned mind says. And then, then the conditioned mind is defined by preferences, oh, well, get rid of your worst enemy, it won't matter, get rid of him anyway, better out of the way. The mind can struggle with these superficial reactions according to preference, idealistic preference or emotional preference. What the Buddha was encouraging us to recognize is that that the heart of loving kindness frees us from the toxin of ill will. Ill will is not justified. There is no virtuous ill will. Hating ourselves is not it. Hating others is not it. Hating that which is ugly is not it. Hating evil is not it. Any form of hating is not it. If we get caught up in hating of any kind from the Dhamma perspective, from reality perspective, if we get caught up in hating and ill will, there will be more suffering. From the conditioned perspective, we quite often feel justified in ill will. It feels good. It can feel good. I remember giving a talk many years ago when I was living in, uh, in Devon and about dealing with, I think I was talking about the, the three poisons of greed, aversion and delusion. The Buddha taught us having to recognize these. And, and then at the end of the talk I asked if there was any questions. And, and one of the uh, members of the gathering there and he said, oh, he said, he said, I just can't convince myself. He said, sometimes I just love hating people. It just feels so good to hate people that are bad. The, the idea that just because it feels good, it can feel good to hate evil. It can feel so right. If you see somebody who's really bad, somebody who's really a real rotten egg, and you can just, just hate them to hell, and it can feel, on a certain level, filled you with energy and righteousness. You feel so good. I'm so good for hating bad. So there's no denying that it can feel good. Or if something is beautiful, just to love something to bits that is so beautiful. You just, it can feel so good just to totally lose yourself in, in, in utter passionate longing for something that's beautiful. What the Buddha was encouraging, and what this practice is encouraging, is is not to deny the way things appear to be, not to grasp with some ideal and and say, "Oh, beauty or pleasure is bad for you; and it's going to lead you, you know, in the road to wickedness," or that uh, you know you're wicked for having anger or whatever. Not to deny the way things appear to be. The, the passions are conditioned; we're programmed by our life experiences. You can you can have any feeling; it doesn't matter what our preferences are. What matters is how we understand the nature of our preferences. And to do that, we're encouraged to develop, as I was saying at the beginning of the meditation, another perspective on our mind so we can see more deeply, feel more deeply, listen beyond the way those voices in our minds talk to us. The voices that we listen to when we listen inwards, they say, you're like this and you're like that and it's like this and it's like that and these voices can just go on and on and on telling us such clever things about reality about ourselves about our experience but what happens when these voices cease 
or when we hear beyond these voices, when we hear these voices from a feeling perspective as if these voices are just like somebody's radio playing, instead of feeling like me having these thoughts, when we listen to these voices, mm, interesting voices, from that free feeling perspective on these voices, or the free feeling perspective on on some of the, um, the emotional feelings we have, you know, like the liking and disliking. When we're caught up in liking, and liking arises with regards to something, then the object of our like suddenly just gets this glow about it. And we start coming out with poetry about how beautiful, you know, how beautiful the beech leaves are in autumn, and start going on and get intoxicated by the beauty. Well, it's all right to write poems about the beech leaves in autumn. It's, it's quite all right. But what isn't all right and what can be a problem for us is when we get lost in our appreciation of the beauty of the beech leaves in autumn. When we get lost in sensual beauty, then unfortunately we get lost in sensual pain. And just as much as we're caught up in liking sensual pleasure, we get caught up in hating sensual displeasure. And we get caught up in what the what Buddhists call samsara, or the endless birth, cycle of birth and death. We get born into pleasure, and I'm happy, and then we die out of pleasure, and then we get born into disappointment or pain or sorrow or ill will, and then I am unhappy. We die out of that, and we get born into pleasure, and this cycle of birth and death, birth and death, going on endlessly, apparently, unless if we prepare ourselves, then maybe there's a possibility that we can go beyond it, or see beyond it, or feel beyond it, which is the freedom that the Buddha was pointing to, the freedom that is awareness itself. Not denying the pleasure, not denying the pain, but pointing out that there's a possibility to not get lost in the pleasure, not get lost in the pain. And doesn't do away with the liking or the disliking, but rather it puts us in a position where we're not driven by our liking and disliking. You can like something that's attractive, like it, but liking is just so. It's all right, you don't have to have it just because you like something. And we don't have to fight over the liking or the disliking. I really dislike that. But it doesn't take us into disgust or hatred or ill will. So this is the possibility of the path of practice and and the reflection that uh, we're encouraged to do on the law of kamma uh, is in support of this, uh, the recognition that we have this possibility to train our minds, that we're not victims, that just because we feel a certain way doesn't mean to say it really is that way. Mm. To hold back, to restrain the assumptions that we live on, live under, live with and listen more deeply, feel more deeply. So I was, uh, as I was saying in the beginning, I, I, I feel very grateful to Alan for the example and the, of, of seeing him at the end of his life. He wasn't a, commercially speaking, wasn't a very long life. I, think, I don't know, maybe he was 47, 48. And by some standards that's not a very long life. But it was obviously a good life, and certainly for me it was an, ex- uh, an encouragement to, to remember that there are consequences to our actions. Mm-hmm. There's one way of 
one way of trying to understand the law of karma is there are consequences to our action. So I, so often we we easily forget. We think we can just we'll get away. We we like to think we can get away with things. Well, what uh, Buddha was encouraging you actually don't get away with anything. The good things we do will have wholesome consequences. There is no way of avoiding the wholesome consequences of the good acts that we perform. So thank you very much for your attention. Andamayangamavarakatasarukarangaramasee